Another muscle. Let's go directly into meditation. It will be a silent meditation. So let's continue with the text. So we're towards the top of page 153. He's done a bit of the nighttime practice in the preceding, the opening section talking about the resolve, the preparation, and also how to view the similarity of all appearances being so similar, whether in the waking state or in the dream state. That is one session, he says, and then we continue. If you still do not apprehend the dream state, even after practicing that many times, then with the other practices as they were before, so in other words, bring that context, bring the, the, the bodhicitta and so forth, and all of that, so then with the other practices they were before, imagine yourself as your single heroic chosen deity or personal deity and clearly, vividly imagine at your throat your, your personal deity once again the size of your thumb joint. So again, this is very personal, whether it's Avalokiteshvara or Tara, Manjushri, whoever it may be, but that which for you symbolizes the divine, the very quintessence of, of enlightenment itself, so you visualize yourself, again, classic form of the uh, stage of generation practice. So we've done that before, no need to elaborate now. But not only do you visualize yourself in this way, when it says heroic, all that simply means is uh, without consort. So you're single without consort, just your, your, own, deity, your own self as the, as the yidam. And then again, at your throat chakra, and for the same reason as before, previously it was organ pema, that is Padmasambhava, but now you may choose your... You choose your personal deity, and again for the same reason as described before, drawing the prana into the heart, into the throat chakra, to facilitate to arouse the dreamy state of consciousness, and so that you can become lucid in it. Direct your consciousness without forcing it. So once again, to fall asleep while maintaining a visualization is no easy feat, and the easiest thing to do is to just keep yourself awake. That is by the sheer effort of maintaining a visualization, then not fall asleep. So again especially for us in modernity, we all are, uh, this is going to be taking, it's going to take a lot of relaxation. Almost as if this were hypnagogic imagery. So yeah, I think you know, you know about that, but just a brief refresher. When you're right on the borderline, as you're falling asleep, and your senses are mostly withdrawn, um, but, you're not, but you haven't fallen into the substrate yet, you haven't gone simply unconscious, uh, but you're in kind of a state of samadhi in the sense that you're still conscious, but... Uh, your senses are withdrawn. So again, the kind of the flow, the energy of your consciousness is not being distributed and diffused out to six fields, which makes everything diffuse, but rather just by the fact that you're falling asleep, uh, that whole energy, the whole flow, the clarity of your awareness is just lingering there just before it steps out, uh, lingering there in the mental domain. And then it commonly arises this hypnagogic imagery which tends to be extremely vivid, clear, realistic. And it's not just imagery as in mental images, but it can also be sounds, it could be smells, taste, anything. Um, and so it's very common. It tends to be a bit sporadic, a bit of this, a bit of that, without a whole coherent storyline. But you're deeply relaxed, you're almost asleep, and yet this extraordinary vividness, and it's effortless because it's just happening all by itself, 
and then that fades out, and most people then just go into deep, dreamless sleep, and for most of us that's non-lucid. But something comparable to that, I mean, you're deep, you're really deeply at rest, you're almost gone, and yet there's that lingering vividness, right? So if you can maintain that kind, so such a light touch, um, stemming from a very deep sense of relaxation, if that light touch, this kind of this evanescent, I think that's the word I want, evanescent, translucent uh, awareness of your own form as the deity, whatever, whoever that may be, and then this little miniature in your throat chakra, so light, so light, you're barely touching it, and then be able to fall asleep, well, that will be very facilitating for having a lucid dream. So, so try it, direct your consciousness without forcing it. If you force it, you'll just stay awake. And fall asleep while envisioning that you will know the dream state as the dream state. So you're doing two things here. Not very complicated, but again, the light touch is imperative. Otherwise, you just won't fall asleep. And that is this very, very light touch of visualization, but also this quiet intent. Just a subtle, sustained intent, resolve, prospective memory. That in a little while, frankly, to be, to be precise, about 90 minutes from now, if you're just about to fall asleep, you will enter into a dream cycle, you're going to be someplace else, other things will be happening, and as soon as you recognize that, that you're anywhere else other than in your room where you fell asleep, that you'll recognize the dream state as the dream state. So that's that resolve again, very important. That's the second session. Now, if you still find it difficult to apprehend the dream state doing that, then fasten your seatbelt, because he's going to give you something much more difficult to do. Visualize at your throat a four-petal lotus with om in its center, ah in front, that would be facing you, nu facing you on the right, ta facing you from the back, and ra on your left. If you can visualize the, the Tibetan syllables, that would be even better. But if you can't, don't worry about it. First, direct your interest to the Om in the center. Now, what you're doing again, what you're doing here with these syllables, is the same thing. Uh, you're you're just just by doing the syllables, visualizing anything, really anything at all, just a pearl of light. You are drawing prana into that into that throat chakra. If you visualize them at the heart, you'll draw it into the heart chakra, and so forth. Put visualize it in your liver, you'll draw energy into your liver. And so you're doing that. Well, you know why. But then, and I will not pretend to understand why those particular syllables, but there is kind of a frequency in sound. We all know that. Sound is a frequency, okay, vibration. And so I think there's kind of, this is high-tech, high-tech visualization with syllables which will have their own kind of reverberation or vibration of the sound. So we see this a lot in Vajrayana. That you're not simply visualizing this form, that form, but, I mean, absolutely standard, for example, visualizing at your heart chakra uh, a certain seed syllable. It could be any of the seed syllables for the various deities. Vajrasattva, for example. Uh, and then the hundred syllables round about. And each of the syllables sounding off its own sound. Right? So, and, so it's kind of like just that. Each one, Om, and I'm, I'm Om, Vajrasattva, Samaya. I do the Sanskrit version rather than Benzazato. But just Om, Vajrasattva, Samaya, Manu, Balaya and then each one sounding itself off. That would be quite a visualization. But you see, 
that it's not just a visualization, but you're actually imagining these forms expressing a sound, which is a certain vibration. So I have confidence this is not trivial. It's not a mere placebo, just like any old syllable will do. I think there's a deep truth here. But just to believe it, it's no big deal. To put it to the test and say, well, how does that work? Because this is you know, just what happens when you do this. Well, the only way you'll know that, of course, is if you can do it. But so first direct your interest to the om in the center, and then when you become sleepily dazed, woozy, I think I would use the word woozy nowadays, as I elevate the translation, as you become woozy, then you're going to shift. You go from the center, you shift, focus your awareness on the ah in front. Then as you're falling asleep, tend to the nu on your right, and when you're soundly asleep, which means obviously you're doing this whole thing lucidly. You focus on the ta in back. And when you have fallen asleep, you focus on the ra on the left. <laughs> and the test will be next Monday, so really cram for this one. Because I'm going to try to find a, well, with the tongue in cheek, I'm going to try to find a clairvoyant lama, and I'm going to test each one of you. So... So there it is. Well, there's your, there's your job description. Okay. While sleeping, okay, now that you are asleep, and you're quote, you know, just totally, you went all the way down there, totally lucid, and you're remembering all these things. Let me say it was Om, and then it was this, and then back to Om again. While sleeping, focus your interest on Om, and with the anticipation of dreaming. So now what you've done, he's, he's plotting exactly, as they say in modern dream, you know, dream science. If you go from the waking state into stage four non-REM sleep, which is deep dreamless sleep, but of course this is lucid, so you're going in lucidly. And in, the, in what Stephen LeBerge, I'm a total amateur, I don't know, but I listen to what I hear, that, that uh, you'll probably be in there roughly about 90 minutes or so, on the average, from the time you fall asleep until the first dream cycle starts. There are roughly five to seven dream cycles per night, with something like 90 minutes per, in between each one. So you're slipping right into the substrate consciousness, with just this, and your environment is just the substrate, but in, within that substrate, because you've gone in with the light on. Remember the image, again, holding aloft a light in a dark room. Well, your substrate is a dark room. Right? It's a dark room. And you're holding aloft the light of Om. So when you have, let's see, while sleeping, focus your interest on Om. So there you are. And with the anticipation of dreaming, so you know it's coming, it's coming, the, the clock is ticking, uh, without being interrupted by other thoughts. So whatever chamata you've cultivated, use it now. Relaxation, stability, vividness, right? Apprehend the dream state while you, with your sleeping awareness. In other words, you're already there. You're ready to be born as a tuku in your first dream. <laughs> well, that's exactly what it is, right? Because you just died. You just died from the waking state. And then you just slipped into this dark blackout, you know, the blackout face, the dark near attainment, and you're about to take rebirth, but you slip through the whole bardo, it's a little kind of dream bardo, you're slipping through that, and then you're just maintaining clarity all the way through, and then when there's some kind of, again, the habitual propensities, you remember those? Those get germinated, something is catalyzed, the symmetry of just this om in, a, in a, an open space of the substrate, just there you are. And Om is a, is a symbol, of course, of the body. Uh, then a dream just appears spontaneously. 
There's a spontaneous actualization out of emptiness. So again, this little microcosm of the big show in so many, in all the sadhanas, I mean, everyone I've ever done, uh, you dissolve everything in emptiness, right? Almost vabhavashuta sabadamas, vabhavashutoham. Everything dissolves into emptiness, into the all phenomena, the purity of all phenomena, that indivisibility of dhammadhatu and dhammakaya. And then out of that emerges a seed syllable, right? Whatever the seed syllable may be, seed syllable. And then out of the seed syllable, then emerges the deity, and the deity is in the midst of the mandala, and then you have the whole environment of the mandala. But it's out of emptiness, the seed syllable, out of the seed syllable, then the whole play of mandala, right? Very familiar. And that, and that ground, of course, is the ultimate ground, the indivisibility of dhammadhatu and dhammakaya. This is a microcosm of that, right? Reflections upon reflections. So where have you dissolved into? You've dissolved into the emptiness of substrate, which is a mere vacuity. And what is your mind dissolved into? The substrate consciousness, which is a facsimile of pristine awareness, primordial consciousness. You know? You're resting there, and then your, pristine, your, your substrate consciousness, which is by nature luminous, right? you remember that self-illuminating mindfulness? You're resting in that now. You're resting in that self-illuminating mindfulness. That's what keeps you lucid. And then you let that luminous quality, that luminous potential quality, aspect of your substrate consciousness take on form. It takes on the form of Om. And you just hold that until then out of Om arises the dreamscape. But you enter right into it, again, like a tuku. That is, you're coming in lucid. You're coming in with your eyes open. You're coming in, not coming in from avidya. Because if you, if you were just in ordinary, non-lucid, dreamless sleep, your consciousness, your substrate consciousness, has been dissolved into the substrate. You've dissolved your, that is, you've released your substrate consciousness into space, but it's a blackout. There is no explicit awareness of anything. You don't even know you're asleep. And so then, in an ordinary non-lucid, the ordinary way of falling asleep, you lose consciousness, your, your, even your substrate, just dissolves into becomes sheathed, so to speak, covered, covered over by the substrate, kind of like that just soft darkness of the substrate. And then, the substrate's still catalyzed by your habitual propensities, but out of ignorance, because the, remember, again, the substrate, its essential nature is unknowing, Ignorance, right? Out of unknowing, unbeknownst to you, suddenly you go, whoop, and there you are, somebody in a dream, but you're coming from a place of unknowing. So from the moment that the dream begins, you don't know. And you came from unknowing, and you, you, you arrive with unknowing. Like, what? And then in the midst of that unknowing, you see all these appearances, and you do what you always do. You reify them. That's what we do with appearances. We reify them. So it comes from avidya to moha, from unknowing to delusion. And delusion is active. Delusion misconstrues, gets it wrong. Avidya is quite innocent. It just doesn't know. It's unaware. But in that unawareness, that is fertile soil for the arising of delusion, which is the act of misapprehension, the reification 
of yourself in the dream, that this is who you really are, other people in the dream, the environment, and every activity, all that's happening in the dream. You're reifying everything. And of course, you're looking out. That's what we do. We're looking out. So there you're in the dream, and you're looking out. And you see, oh, that's attractive. And oh, that's fearful. And now I want that, and I want to get away from that. And so then, and this makes me happy. Oh, that, that's, that's dangerous. I have to fight that one off. So you're already, You're ready to spin your samsara indefinitely. Right? Out of delusion comes craving and hostility. And then all their babies, jealousy, arrogance, and so forth and so on. Now there's an interesting point. I find it really interesting. A simple point is you can't remember what you never knew in the first place. I think that's logically tight. You can't remember, you can't recall what you never knew in the first place. So the first moment of a non-lucid dream, the first moment of a non-lucid dream, which is one, the very first moment is unknowing, like what? And the second moment is delusion. In that first moment, it's unknowing. You don't know. You don't know what's happening. You don't know you're dreaming. Just for starters, you don't know you're dreaming. And you don't know it in the second moment either, but in the second moment, you think you're not dreaming because we reify. So from within the context of the dream, you can't recall the first moment of the dream. The first in, within the context of a non-lucid dream, you can't recall the first moment of the dream because you were unaware of the first moment of the dream as a dream. You can't remember what you weren't aware of in the first place. So from your perspective, the dream has no beginning. Because when you think back, you think back and then nothing. You can think back to your earliest recognition of it being uh, of something happening, like you're cooking tea in your kitchen, and something, let's say, you're cooking tea in your kitchen. You can remember that, like, okay, what's my earliest memory? Cooking tea in the kitchen. But what happened before that? I don't know, I was just cooking tea in the kitchen. Yeah, but something must have happened before that. How'd you get there? Where did you get the tea? When did you buy the pot? Who's your mama? Who's your daddy? Where did you come from? You're taking yourself very seriously within the dream because you think that's who you are. Right? This is as far as, as far as you know, this is it. This is it. This is reality. This is who you are. But if somebody comes and said, Where did you buy that pot? And where were you born? Who's your daddy? Who's your mommy? Where'd you grow up? It's like, I think it's more than not remembering. It's kind of like, I should know that. And there's nothing there. All I remember was, I was in the kitchen. I was cooking tea. And that's weird. There's no beginning. From your perspective, there's no beginning to the dream. It's not that you have a sense that it's been going on for eternity. Because you don't have just memory, 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 going back to you know, an infinite sequence. That would be one way of having no beginning. 
that you just keep on tracking it back, tracking it back, tracking it back, and just finding, well, I just got more and more and more and more and more and more, more memories. But that's not what that way. No, it's just, I was cooking tea. And before that, nothing. So from your perspective, there is no beginning to that dream. There's an end, but there's no beginning. Now think about when you're settling the mind in this natural state. Or watching breath, it could be, but just settling the mind in this natural state because it's such a strong parallel. And there you are. It could be any of the three methods. It could be just awareness of awareness. Resting there, let's just say that one. Awareness of awareness. And there you are, spot on. Spot on. Just right there, silent, clear, attentive, cognizant. And then, after some time, you recognize, oh, course excitation. Uh, my mind's been wandering. Retrospectively, you know, oh, I've been caught up in this thought. Right? Ever had that experience? I'm not speaking to aliens here. <laughs> Trace it back. When did your wandering thought start? That is, you can, remember the, you can remember the end, and you can probably track it back. What did, you, what did you remember just before then? And what did you remember just before then? But now tell me, what was, how did the, the wandering thought begin? What was the first moment? And you see, it's the same, isn't it? If you had been aware in the first moment of the wandering thought, it wouldn't have been a wandering thought. Because you wouldn't have been wandering. Because your attention would not have strayed off to the referent of the thought. You'd still be there in your stillness, aware, aware right from its inception, a thought is arising, a thought is a passing. Another thought is arising, and it's passing. First type of mindfulness, right? Single-pointed mindfulness. You're maintaining your stillness, and as soon as the thought arises, you're aware of it, you recognize it as such, recognize the mind as the mind, and that it dissolves of its own accord. And another fireworks display comes up, you're recognizing an emotion as emotion, and it releases itself. Right? That's when you're lucid, as you're practicing awareness of awareness, taking the mind as a path. But when you get abducted from your throne, when you're carried away, you notice that the thought put a paper bag over your head. That is, it got you in a moment of unawareness. Otherwise, it wouldn't have gotten you. And in that first moment, the paper bag went over your head. You were unaware. And then, after some time, three seconds, three minutes, whatever it is, oh, my mind was wandering. Yeah, but when did it start? What was the first moment? What was the first moment of the mind wandering, of that little trip? When did it start? You can't remember what you never knew in the first place. And in the first moment, you were unaware. In the second moment, you're deluded because you're attending to the referent of the thought and getting angry at it, desiring it, whatever it may be. You're having a little miniature dream. You're daydreaming, but it has no beginning from your, from your perspective. It had an end. It has no beginning from your perspective, because you weren't there when it began. There was no cognizance of it when it began, and you can't remember what you never knew in the first place. So a wandering thought has no beginning. A non-lucid dream has no beginning. And you know where this is going. Samsara has no beginning. 
When did you first arrive? Says the minister to the prince. Where did you come from? Where were you born? Think back. What were your origins? How did you get here? When did you first become a wandering beggar? Tell me about your childhood. Tell me about your origins. And I should know that. But I'm recognizing not only that I can't remember, but I'm recognizing there is nothing to remember. I'm not just not finding it. I'm seeing there's nothing to be found. I'm seeing an emptiness of my own origins. I wonder how seriously I should take this, that I'm a truly and inherently a wandering beggar. So the opposite of that is settling your mind in this natural state, in this little microcosm. The wandering thought comes up. It's wandering, but you're not. You're remaining still. You're not doa. You're not on the move. The thought is on the move, but you're not on the move, right? Yeah. And so that thought, you're right there when it comes up. It, opens, it just knocks on the door of your awareness. You're right there when it comes up. And then it does its trip. And then it fades out, and you're there for the whole scene. No ignorance, no delusion. And likewise, what are you talking about here? Out of this space of your substrate, the luminosity of your own substrate consciousness taking on the form of Om, and then maintaining that lucidity, that flow of cognizance. Then the dreamscape spontaneously forms, and you find yourself embodied in the dream, surrounded by people, situations, environments, and so on, and you're born with your eyes wide open. So in the first moment, there is awareness. In the second moment, there's recognition. And you sustain that with a sense of relaxation, stability, and vividness. And you're free. You're free. That's the big difference between a non-lucid dream and a lucid dream. Because in a non-lucid dream, where we're just, it's fundamentally rooted in unknowing, and then proceeds with delusion, and then delusion spreads out its babies, the derivative secondary mental afflictions. Uh, well, by and large, I mean, pretty much without exception, in the midst of a non-lucid dream, uh, we're acting out of habit. It's acting out of habit. And so people having non-lucid dreams sometimes have very pleasant ones, and very virtuous ones. And other people have non-lucid dreams that are nightmares, that are unpleasant, they're anxious, they're negative, and so forth. Others just have boring dreams. But however they respond, however they react to situations taking place within the dream, that's simply a sheer reflection of or expression of the type of habits that they've created in the waking state. Right? So the message there is really loud and clear. And that is the type of habits, just plain old virtue and non-virtue, things like that, let alone developing relaxation, stability, vividness in shamatha, let alone developing the four immeasurables, and so on, and making these habits, habits, habits. But whatever we are, we as long as we're here in samsara, we are creatures of habits. That is, we are strongly influenced by these habitual propensities, our karma, our predilections, but habit. And so the habits that we create over the course of a lifetime we can be quite certain that they are going to 
exert themselves quite strongly when we're in the dying process. Quite strongly. You've already, most if not all of you, have experienced upheavals that come. When you start to go deeper into samadhi, your mind starts to gradually collapse into or dissolve into a deeper state of awareness, moving towards the substrate consciousness. And you get these eruptions taking place, the upheavals taking place, some of them quite upsetting. Uh, one can be quite confident that that will occur in the dying process. Because it's, it's the same thing happening. In the dying process, your mind is collapsing into the substrate consciousness. right? Whether you like it or not, whether it's lucid or non-lucid, that's what's happening. In which case, the kind of stuff that is there, the habitual propensities, the memories, the emotions, and so forth, are likely to flare up in the dying process. And that's going to have a strong influence on what follows when you're in the bardo. And then if your bardo is, when you're in this intermediate state, this bardo of becoming, transitional phase of becoming, if you're not lucid, if you're not recognizing the bardo as the bardo, you're just kind of bewildered. In other words, you come in ignorant, and then you get there and you're deluded. And in the first part of the bardo, not even aware you're dead. you know, And then being quite perturbed by other people ignoring you and so on but acting out of habit, then, you know, if you've developed a lot of very wholesome habits, the four immeasurables and so forth, you may have a relatively pleasant bardo and then take a relatively fortunate rebirth. But basically you're in a non-lucid dream and you're just reacting, acting, reacting out of habit. And if those habits are good, then that's good. But you're still deluded. Uh, And if your habits are are mixed, then it's kind of a crapshoot like playing roulette, Russian roulette with yourself in the bardo, because anything can come up. I mean, most of us have pretty mixed karma. We have mental afflictions, and then we have virtues, mental afflictions, virtues, neutral, and so forth. So we have kind of a whole medley of habits. And so uh, are you feeling lucky today near in the bardo that uh, you just kind of go over to? I hope it turns out well. So there's a lot to be said then for lucidity. That's why he's teaching it here. Is that as you enter into the dream lucidly, then insofar as you're lucid, you're free. That is, you're drawing on your full wisdom, however much wisdom you have. You really have the choice to exert that wisdom, to make wise choices, to recall the teachings that he gave earlier, earlier, of if you find yourself in the bardo, recall the five Buddha fields, Shoot your, shoot your awareness like an like a arrow shot by a strong archer. You know, remember, remember. So similar to the lucid dreaming, the strong resolve. You know, when you're in the dream, then do this. So this is all really an encouragement. To become lucid in the dream so that you can make wise choices uh, as, an, as a preparation for being lucid in the bardo so you can make wise, big choices that will really direct your destiny, direct where you're going. That's a pretty big freedom. So you can either be a creature of habit or you can be a creature of wisdom, but everything hinges on becoming cognizant. So, if the seed syllables are unclear, and you still do not apprehend the dream state in that way, focus your attention clearly and vividly on a bindu of light. Bindu is simply an orb of light at your throat. So now you make it simple. Just a bindu of light. Just keep it nice and simple. A red bindu would be the, the color of choice. 
nice little glowing orb of red light, ruby red light at your throat. And with the anticipation of dreaming, fall asleep and thereby apprehend the dream state. That's the fourth session. So he's giving you multiple avenues here, multiple techniques. Meditate by alternating among the meditative objects. So with these different methods, so try them out. And very similar, remember he gave a nice sequence also for shamatha without a sign. Sometimes just rest there and just oscillate, accentuating your awareness of consciousness itself and then releasing, just loosening up, loosening up, and then accentuating. And then he said, okay, then go into the, into the agent, go into the observer, go up, right, left, down, to your heart, out into space, and you can rotate around those, remember? Rotate around those to become quite adept atoms. You, you can try different methods on different days or sessions of your practice, right? And here, similarly, you'll have hopefully many opportunities to fall asleep. So he says, well, try these out. By alternating, meditate by alternating among the meditative objects and practice with a powerful sense that daytime appearances are dreams. So this is, this is what you really can do. That is, it's not waiting to see whether you succeed or not. But really, as much as you can, during the course of the day, maintain. And he said, go ahead and use your imagination. Just imagining. Number one, you really want to bring some wisdom here. You're not just playing like, imagine you're a cowboy and I'm an Indian. So it's not just merely pretending. As much as you can, bring whatever insight you have. You know, insight, especially the Madhyamaka insight. That would be the deepest here. Uh, or whatever insight you have in Rigpa. That would be great too, the Dzogchen view. But as much as you, and it must be authentic, this is a really crucial point, and that is there should never be any hypocrisy pretending to yourself something you think is not true. That's really important. Uh, it's stated, I, I remember in, in the kind of teaching, let's just step way back to the teachings on metta, metta bhavana, good old-fashioned immeasurable loving-kindness practice. Okay? Good, solid, grounded, realistic, no belief system required. But you'll recall that in this classic sequence of Buddha-gosa, stemming from you know, centuries and centuries of yogis cultivating loving-kindness in the Theravada tradition, you start where it's really easy. Well, it used to be easy. And that is cultivating loving-kindness for yourself. I think ancient Indians found that quite easy. We have a little bit of remedial work to do with all these issues of low self-esteem and so on. But you know, get up so your head is above water, and actually you wish, you wish yourself well. You accept yourself, you're loving, you're affectionate for yourself, like a really loving parent. So get to that level, however long it takes you to get up there. We'll get back there. Now you can meditate with the Theravada monks, you know, good, healthy-minded Theravada monks from 1,500 years ago who are starting out with that. You know, like, yeah, well, why wouldn't I love myself? I'm okay. I'm not a messengent being. That's enough. I'm worthy of compassion. The Buddha loved me. I love myself. Case closed. So you start there, but you remember this very gentle approach that's taken, Buddha Gosa. Very gentle approach. You attend to one who you already hold very dear. Now, this was often taught by monks to monks, so you would not call to mind a person for whom you have a lot of attachment. So if a monk, for example, is sexually attracted to some woman, well, he's not going to be thinking about her. She may be very nice, very friendly, very sweet to him, but he doesn't want to go there, because it's, you know, rise loving kindness and other things will arise too. So the monk or the nun will be choosing someone for whom there's genuine affection, but not the attachment, certainly not the sexual craving, because that just you know, derails him from his monkhood. That's not going to be helpful. So you focus on someone for whom there is 
minimal amount of attachment, but a strong degree of affection, caring, love, closeness, uh, all of that. And then you develop that sense of something like this equality of self and other. And that is just as I wish for happiness, so does this very dear person. I hold myself dear, but I also hold this person dear. And you try to make that with no barrier, you know, no hierarchy. So there is something of an equal, equalization of self and other there. And then you go to another person who's a, a friend, a good friend. And you develop similarly, like my very dear friend, or my very dear loved one, or like, like this person. You extend out to the, the friend, and then a more casual friend. And then the, you know, the postal carrier, or the person at your, at your local grocery market that you buy groceries from. A nice person, no big deal, but, you know, so quite neutral, but no, no problem. Develop it there. But then where you're going, and he has a long section on this, in his Visuddhimagga, or Path of Purification, countering resentment. When you're getting, you're getting deep into the practice, and you're saying, okay, you've dealt with yourself, the very dear loved one, the friend, the neutral person, but now you're encroaching in the hostile territory of people that you really maybe just don't care for much, or then you can go deeper, deeper, deeper into the waters where you have the greatest difficulty, put it that way, the greatest difficulty of aversion, contempt, hatred, fear, uh, resentment, and so on. But what I'm, this was all rather an excursion to make a very important point, and that is don't go there too soon. Don't, because if you go there to, go too, too soon, and you bring to mind this person you frankly loathe and has treated you perhaps very, really terribly, and you're, you're sitting there and thinking, may you, just like myself, be well and happy. And you don't mean it at all. You'd like for them to drop dead. Or at least never, you know, never be seen again. Because you fear them. They make you anxious. You feel resentful. You're afraid of your own reactions if you see them. Then to put it, be putting on a sugar coating on top of that. I really can't stand your guts. But may you, like myself, and you used to say it in a nice, soft voice, May you, like myself, be well and happy. You know. Well, nobody's fooled in the universe. You're not fooled. The Buddhas are not fooled. If that person were listening, they'd say, well, you can just cut the crap. I know you don't like me. You know. So you don't go there. You don't go there too fast. You take it step by step by step. And so each, point, each one, each phase there is authentic, authentic, authentic. You must bring in the eyes of wisdom. Because these people may be unappealing. Really. Otherwise, you'd probably love them. They're unappealing, their behavior is unappealing, their attitude is unappealing, their behavior may be very destructive, they may have harmed you and the people you love. Uh, and so there's just nothing lovable in all of that. There's nothing attractive, nothing appealing, nothing that makes you want to feel close. Anyone you want to be, feel close with Ebola virus? You, say, you just do a lot of damage. So you have to see through the appearances. Right? And only then do you step into those deep waters with the eyes of wisdom. Eyes of wisdom, never, and you have the, the wisdom and the discernment not to equate the unappealing, negative, destructive, and even evil qualities and behavior of the person you're attending to with that person. With that person. Just as a, as a psychiatrist in a mental hospital who's dealing with dangerous psychopaths, who instead of going to prison, they're sent to this high security mental institute. Well, their behavior is unappealing, psychotic. Their attitudes are psychotic. There's nothing lovable about their behavior or their attitudes or anything expressed. Nothing. You look for it. There's nothing there at all. But the good doctor, the bodhisattva doctor, 
instead of having one thought, how can I heal you? How can I heal you? How can I at least prevent you from doing any harm? Because that will only bring harm to you. At the very minimum, I need to do that. But if now having contained you, so you're not harming anyone, hopefully not yourself either, what can I do? Because I'm seeing their essential being like myself with a terribly, terribly troubled mind, helpless, deluded, not knowing which way to go, wishing for happiness, not having a clue how to find it, wishing to be free of suffering, completely confused about how to be free of suffering, seeing through all of that, and the doctor looking upon this patient and feeling, you're just like me. How could I help you? So then it's authentic. Then it's authentic. But it has to be authentic. Otherwise, no hypocrisy. Nobody's fooled. So, so, so for like this also. So but what I'm getting at, and that was all the tension, but I think a meaningful one, and that is, if during the daytime, bring forth a powerful sense that daytime appearances are dreams, well, it's not enough to wake up in the morning and just tell yourself, this is like a dream, this is like a dream. Who's, who's kidding who? No, it's not. This is waking reality. This is not a dream. This is not a, okay, it's like a dream. It's like a dream. Because Padmasambhava told me, think it's like a dream. No, it's not. But it's like a dream. You know, who are you kidding? Not kidding Padmasambhava, not kidding yourself. Nobody else is getting any benefit. So it has to be something more than a slogan, more than brainwashing. The brainwashing is not going to work. It's just that layering of delusion on top of delusion, right? Pretending as if you know what's going on when you fundamentally don't. So that's why you need to bring wisdom here. And insofar as it is authentic, then remind yourself of what you intuit or what you know. This, in fact, is like a dream. And the deeper you inside into emptiness, the more powerful that will be. Even the least of practitioners will apprehend the dream state within one month. At first, there will be more dreams. So here's a nice sequence, a very nice sequence. At first, there will be more dreams. Well, how will you know that? Now we slip back over to lucid dreaming. This wonderful, you know, writings, research, eloquent descriptions, practical explanations from, from Stephen LeBerge. If you read German, Pautolai, Pautolai was, he's passed away early, died young, relatively young, but he was one of the premier researchers in Europe, a German dream, um, so dream, lucid dream specialist. He and Stephen LeBerge were good, good friends, I believe, at least colleagues. And there are others, like Jane Gackenbach, I met years ago. She's a researcher in the field. And there are many others now. My memories are all old here. Uh, a number of very good books have come out recently uh, by people with a good background in Buddhism and then also real experience in lucid dreaming, dream yoga. So you'll find them. You just, you'll find them. I won't give titles right now. But several have come out recently. Very good. Very good. Very helpful. And drawing from, you know, in the modern context, but drawing from the depths of the Buddhist tradition here. So, but the first point here, again drawing from modern lucid dreaming, is the first step towards really developing your ability to dream lucidly is to recall your dreams at all. Because if you're having more and more dreams, but you're not remembering any of them, then you won't know that you're having more and more dreams. But a number of you are making quite good progress there, and that's good. So recall your dreams, and then you'll recognize that there will be more dreams. And what that probably really means is you have, you're, you're recalling more dreams. Whether you're actually having more dreams is an open question. Because the dream, dream scientists say, well, it's pretty much five to seven cycles per night. If you dream, you know, if you sleep, get a full night's sleep. 
but you'll have a sense of having more dreams if you remember them, of course. So first there'll be more dreams. You may read that as, first there'll be greater dream recall. Then they'll become clearer. Vivid, just vivid, high definition. Clearer storyline, maybe longer, more detailed, richer plot. Right? So clearer. That's the second thing. And then they'll be apprehended. So by the time you're having very good dream recall, and if you use some of the modern techniques, you have a nice list of dream signs. During the course of the day, you're either practicing classic dream yoga, and that is just bringing in that, that sense this is like a dream, or this is a dream. This is like a dream from the perspective of emptiness teaching. This is a dream from the perspective of the Dzogchen. Either way, there's the classic dream yoga approach. But again, there's no reason if, if, that seems, well, if that seems like you don't really sense it's a dream, if you don't really just don't have enough insight into emptiness, let alone insight into Rikpa or Dzogchen, well, you can still do practice, and that is look for anomalies. Anomalies, they happen very frequently in dreams. And so look, and then keep your eyes wide open during the daytime, when you think it's the daytime. And look for any kind of anomaly. As soon as you see an anomaly, recognize it as such. You may even say mentally, that's an anomaly. And then you ask yourself, might I be dreaming? I'm quite sure I'm not, but I might be. Let's do a state check to find out. Do your state check. So even if you don't have the Madhyamaka view, you don't have a Dzogchen view, you still have anomalies. And could that, so that can be kind of a preschool, daytime lucid dreaming practice. Not quite dream yoga practice, but daytime lucid dreaming practice. And it's developing a similar set of skills of this prospective memory, of remembering to recognize something in the future, something specific, like an anomaly, and when you recognize it, remembering in advance to do something. Right? Because we're going to be seeing a lot of that. Recognize and then do something. That's the whole next section emanation and transformation. Recognize it, become lucid, and now do something. Remember from the waking state what you decided to do before you fell asleep. And now that you're asleep and lucid, remember, because you've got your work cut out for you. You've got a lot to do now in this emanation and transformation phase of dream yoga. But the first thing, of course, is you just have to start recognizing the dreams as dreams. Now, in the event of a frightening circumstance, so like a nightmare, it is easy to recognize this is a dream. So Tsongkhapa makes this point. It's a common point, I think, in dream research. This is a, something obvious. A lot of people have recognized it. And that is the easiest way to spontaneously recognize that you're having a dream is have a really rotten one that's weird, grotesque, probably unbelievable. And then you see it so weird. You think, this must be a dream. This, mu- this, this, this has to be a dream. Why would there be cobras in my bedroom? Lots of them. Why? That's, I'm dreaming. And then the common thing is, if, the guy, yeah, if your bedroom is just, you know, have cobras all over the place, you get out of the bedroom. And the way you do that is hit the ejector button on your dream and say, I'm out of here. And you wake up. So that's not, not what normally happens. When people have a brief fleeting experience of lucidity, because they're recognizing a nightmare as a nightmare, their first thought is escape. And so the lucidity is very short but then you don't get any of the insight of really having a lucid dream and exploring that mode of reality. But that's the easiest way. It is easy to recognize this as a dream. Uh, and well, people will say that in the waking state, right? When something really awful happens, a trauma happens, a tragedy happens, something totally bizarre, usually awful happens, 
people say, I can't believe it. I, they, this, can't, this can't be happening. I must be dreaming. And then somebody comes and, I, and they say, I'm, I'm very sorry, but no, this is, this is, you have to get a grip. This is happening. You know? And then maybe it, you know, it is. But that's the first thought. When we see something, it's just so awful, unanticipated, unexpected, and unwanted. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. You know, your spouse went off to work and you just heard that he's dead because he had a stroke while in the car. His car crashed. He was already dead by the time it crashed. I can't believe it. He was perfectly healthy this morning. Can't believe it. No, it's not possible. It's somebody else. Not possible. Not possible. And then you see the body. Well, okay, it's possible. You know. But the first thought is, no, it's not, it's not true. It has to be a dream. It can't be. It can't be. It can't be. Well, in a dream, you're right. It can't be. It's not. And then you wake up. So it's a brief, that's a, so that's a habit that carries over from the waking state to the dream state, right? So it is easy to recognize this is a dream if you're having a nightmare. It is difficult for it to be a, for it to be apprehended spontaneously. That is, if it's not a nightmare, it's an ordinary dream, an ordinary weird anomalous dream. Sometimes dreams are really boring, especially if they're very vivid. Then you think, well, just one more ordinary day, and then you fall back into deep sleep. So it's difficult without an anomaly, without some kind of preparation, especially if there are no particular anomalies. You're just cooking tea in the kitchen. Why would you wake up and recognize you're dreaming when you've cooked tea in the kitchen so many times before? Just one more time. So it's difficult to do so spontaneously. But if it is so apprehended, this is stable. That is, if you're not in the midst of a nightmare, maybe it's an anomaly, something else, whatever it is, people do spontaneously have dreams. And if it's not in the shock situation, of a nightmare, something more ordinary, and you do recognize the dream as a dream, then it's easier to maintain because you don't want to, you're not freaking out wanting, wanting to get out of the dream as soon as possible. You're just cooking tea. And so then it's easier to maintain the continuity of the dream and the lucidity in the dream. So if it is so ha- apprehended, this is stable. That is not in a nightmare situation. If it is not apprehended in any of those ways, so he's given you now a whole roster, an array of different practices for induced, inducing lucidity. If you're still not succeeding, you know, a month has gone by or longer, then you say, well, there may be a blockage here. There may be some, yeah, dip, a blockage. There may be an infraction of your tantric pledges. That is, if you've taken Vajrayana initiation, you've taken Samayas, you may have broken the Samaya, in which case that can be a block. So whatever the blockage may be, whether it's a breakage of vow or a Samaya or what have you, what do you do? So apply yourself to going for refuge. That's very purifying. Cultivate bodhicitta. That's purifying. Restoration through confession. So apply the four remedial powers. I won't go into them. You can find them anywhere. That will, that will purify. The hundred-syllable mantra, so the Vajrasattva practice, that will purify. The tsok, or ganachakra offering, that purifies. Avoid contamination. So just getting your mind all cluttered up with mental addiction and so forth and meditating in the, in the preceding way, in the previous way. So those are various ways. You know, if there are obstacles, there's a whole set of ways to uh, dissolve those obstacles and then continue practicing as before. By so doing, the dream state will be apprehended in just two or three months. And eventually you'll be able to re- apprehend it regularly. And that's assuming, of course, that you're practicing regularly. Okay. Now, that's the advantage for those of us here in Phuket. Some of you, I think, listening by podcast are living in a rather contemplative environment, having a lot of time to practice. I'm delighted for you. Uh, 
It's more difficult, but not impossible, if you're living a very socially engaged way of life, but you do have a lot more things on your mind. Um, also, one advantage of being in retreat when you're practicing um, dream yoga is that there's a lot of emphasis on what to do as you're falling asleep, once you've fallen asleep, and so forth and so on. And when you're in the early stages of the practice, that can take a little bite out of your sleep. You know, uh, Not simply having lucid dreams, that's fine, you're still sleeping, so all should be well. But in all of the anticipation around it, um, you may lose a bit of your sleep. And if you have a full day the next day, full day of work and obligations, commitments and so forth, and you only got six hours of sleep when you needed eight, that can be a real downside. Happily here, we have so few obligations that even if you get only a few hours of sleep at night, you can sleep in until 8.45. And on Sunday, by the way, sleep all day for all I care. Uh, and then you can nap during the daytime. So that's, an, that's kind of an advantage of having so few, almost none, obligations on our time. So I just wanted to share with you something I've read all be- before, because you know where we're going. Once you've stabilized, once you've become lucid, and then you've brought in your skills from your shamatha practice, that sense of ease, not getting so excited you wake yourself up, right? Sense of ease, sense of kind of casual, oh yeah, lucid dream, good. That sense of ease there, not unraveling it, and then you bring in the stability, the co- I said this before, so now very brief repetition, maintaining the continuity of your lucidity, recognizing the dream as the dream, and maintaining the dream itself, and you know, reinforcing it by really engaging with it, and then attending more and more closely so it becomes high resolution, clear, vivid. And then, okay, the stage is set, you're ready now, ready, the lab is prepared, the laboratory of your mind is prepared, to run experiments. And we'll see. We'll start on that on Monday. Running experiments, emanation and transformation. Now, as we go through it, you'll become more and more clear why you're doing that. It's not fun and games. It's not simply entertainment. not simply developing mundane cities. Uh, there's a very deep reason for doing it. And it's really, I mean, in a nutshell, it's in a very practical way. Exploring the plasticity of the dream, the malleability of the dream, how, how open to suggestion is your dream? Or is there anything that's hard, resistant, like a wall that you can't walk through, or what have you? you know, that you're trying to transform something and you can't transform it. As soon as you find anything, your own body, body of another person, or anything else, where you find that it's resistant to the play of your imagination, resistant to the power of your conceptual designation, then you know something. you got a blockage. You have reification. You're grasping. You're hardening up something within the total fluidity of the dream, where there's nothing there anyway. How could anything be hard when there's nothing there at all? Just empty appearances. But if you meet with some resistance where you just can't do something, something's resistant to play of your imagination, conceptual designation, expectation, and so forth. Here again is unbridled placebo effect. You know, what you wish, what you expect. Why not? Because there's no resistance. There's no molecules, there's no genes, there's no physicality at all that would anyway impede the play of your expectation, faith, desire, anticipation, imagination. So you're really exploring the emptiness emptiness of inherent nature, of everything, including your own mind, of this dreamed person, your own identity as the dreamed person, 
and everything and everyone you're engaging with. But you're exploring that not by simply sitting down and practicing vipassana, but you're exploring it as a toddler explores the world by engaging with it, putting it in your mouth, touching it, squeezing it, pushing it, smelling it, and so forth. And then you get to know your world as a toddler. And now you're getting to know the world of your mind with these luminous manifestations of the dream and recognizing how they are luminous and empty, how they are appearing and they are emptiness, that they're empty. Emptiness is form, form is emptiness. Apart from emptiness, there's no form. Apart from form, there's no emptiness. That's it. That's it in a dream. This little microcosm, the dress rehearsal for waking up and seeing the extent to which you can take these insights and let this flow over into the waking state and explore for yourself now. When the Prajnaparamita, in so many cases, the Buddha and many other great sages throughout history, say the waking state is like a dream. Well, that's a very powerful statement if you have a very clear understanding of what a dream is like. But if your dreams have been non-lucid, then you don't really know what they're like, because you're deluded every time you went in, and you never explored them. So to say that waking state is like a non-lucid dream is not exactly a helpful suggestion. It may be accurate, but it's not very helpful. Right? So this is really getting to know what a dream is like, so that when you're in the waking state, you know what it means to suggest that it is like a dream, because you know what a dream is like. So you're seeing the connection there. And what you're finding as you go into this phase, which will, again will start on Monday, of emanation and transformation, is that the scope of your cities, the extent of your cities, your paranormal abilities, you name it, walking on water, multiplying, shape-shifting, whatever, the, the scope or the breadth, the extent of your cities is basically limited only by your imagination. Only by your imagination. Right? That's it. Because there's, just no, there's no resistance objectively that would inhibit, block, or impair the free creativity of your own mind and the dream. And then, of course, this just must happen, mustn't it? And that is, if you're lucid, number one, you know it's a dream. And you'll know, at least intellectually, bearing in mind there's a whole bandwidth of how lucid are you, right? Your first lucid dreams, like that early one that I had, it didn't occur to me really as I was interviewing or kind of coming to these people in the diner that they weren't really other than me, you know? So, and then asking them, you know, do you know this is a dream? Um, had I been more lucid, I might have asked something else. Who knows? It was a very early dream. And I was just kind of excited that I knew that it was, I was dreaming. But was I already able to walk through walls, to fly, to transform, and so forth? No, I was baby. I just, you know, a baby lucid dreamer. And so you've just begun. But as you return and return and return to lucidity, then the, the depth, the clarity, the fullness of your comprehension of the dream state as the dream state can become quite thorough. And that's the point. But you can see, it's just common sense. Even if you've not had a lucid dream, just imagining this that as you become more and more thoroughly lucid, so much so that you can be like this friend of mine up in Norway, where the person comes at her threatening with a knife and not feeling that she has to transform him or, oh, I'll fly away. She could have done either one. She could have transformed into a, a cocker spaniel with a little bone in its mouth. She could have flown away. What's easier than a guy with a knife? Bye. Pew. Yeah, your Tinkerbell. Pew. Bye-bye. 
okay? It's easier. You can be Tinkerbell at the snap of a finger. You know, a little, little bit of fairy dust and off you are. So easy. But no, she had no, no incentive, no need. She just saw the guy coming with a knife. She said, oh, I'll help you. You know, like that. Well, that shows a person who's kind of really got it. There's nothing to escape from. There's no harm. It's like letter blingba knowing. You intuitively know that whether thoughts are still occurring or not, nothing can harm your mind. You intuitively know that whatever happens in the dream, whatever happens in the dream, a nuclear explosion, a machine gun, cobras, alligators, the scariest thing you can possibly imagine, cannot possibly do you any harm. But in the midst of all of that, what must be the message? As you become very adept in emanation and transformation, what must be the message is you must be understanding there so thoroughly, deeply, that it's beyond a shadow of a doubt that nothing in the dream whatsoever has any inherent nature of its own. Otherwise, the knife would hurt. Otherwise, 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 it would be different. But by the time you've just you've been like a potter shaping the dream as you wish, time and time and time again, every aspect of the dream, you can become invisible. You can become a woman, a man, a dog. You can become a forest. The Dalai Lama said, maybe, when he was asked once about his future life, he said, well, maybe I'll take birth as a meadow. A nice place for people to lie down and enjoy themselves. Wouldn't that be interesting? The 15th Dalai Lama is a meadow. And the, and the Chinese come in and say, no! <laughs> it's not in Tibet, we can't. Uh, Bodhisattva can manifest in any way he likes. In Buddha's Reflections of the moon and the water. It's a meadow. Whatever you like, right? There's nothing, no limit to the imagination of a, a Buddha. But the point here is simple. And that is you simply must, through a really a very empirical approach, not the brilliant analytical quality and power of a Nagarjuna, Chantikirti, Aridhideva, Tsongaba, and so forth, just by running experiments. Like, again, it's only an analogy, but it's not a bad analogy. Anton Seininger, he's just running experiments. He's not a theoretical physicist. He's not a Stephen Hawking or John Wheeler or someone like that. He's really a, an empiricist. He's, he's always going back to his lab. And that's what he got so excited when, the, when, he, when he saw the parallels between his insights in the lab through their experiments. And then the Dalai Lama, his holiness, talking about emptiness. He said, I've got to show you. I really would like to take you to my lab, and I'll show you the evidence in our experiments lead me to the conclusions that I've drawn while you've drawn them from your analytical reasoning, your meditation, and so forth. But I can show you. I can, show, I can make it understandable to you, the experiments we've run. And then you'll see why I've come to this conclusion. Because this is third person, this is public domain, this is science. Right? He was so excited. And it was a very cool day. You know, when we went from one, lab, one, one research to another, and finally quantum teleportation, which he was the first one to accomplish quantum teleportation. I won't go into it. It's, it's dinner time. But, um, but it was quite cool. And he showed the Dalai Lama the, why he had drawn the conclusion that elementary particles have no inherent existence. And if elementary particles have no inherent existence, what do you think about a large assembly of elementary particles? Like a cell phone. It consists of nothing other than elementary particles and fields. Well, if the particles aren't substantial, you can forget about the fields, because they're about as insubstantial as anything can possibly be. 
and we've known that since 1865, at least James Click Maxwell did. They're mathematical abstractions. They're not something chunky out there in the world. So through experimentation within a lucid dream, you're realizing the emptiness of inherent nature of everything in the dream. Hmm. So what does that sound like? It sounds to me like a passage that I've already cited from the Perfection of Wisdom Sutra in 100,000 stanzas. You're going to get it twice. It's in the notes now, twice. Here's what the Buddha says in this Mahayana Sutra. You accomplish the first jhana and abide therein. You accomplish the second jhana and abide therein. You accomplish the third jhana and abide therein. You accomplish the fourth jhana and abide therein. Now, you settle in meditative equipoise in the fourth jhana and experience numerous types of paranormal abilities. You cause even the earth to quake. You transform from one to many. You transform from many to one. You experience becoming visible and invisible. You pass through walls. You pass through fences, passing through mountains. You move about with an unimpeded body like a bird in the sky. You move through space in a cross-legged position like a feathered bird. You move up through the earth and down into the earth as if moving through water. You walk upon water without sinking as if proceeding on land. You billow forth smoke and blaze with light like a bonfire. He's saying that's in the waking state with the fourth jhana. How could you be doing that if that's true? And you don't have to believe it. I mean, believe whatever you like. But I have a lot of faith in that. How could you be doing all that stuff and not gain some insight into emptiness? Walk through walls and then think, oh, yeah, it was inherently existent, by the way. And so was my body. Well, that's not possible. There's an issue of density of molecules, right? In electromagnetic fields. My body cannot walk through a wall. That's because, you know, it's physical. And it won't get through. It's too dense. But if you can, that would be kind of empirical evidence. That wall is not inherently existent. Nor are its molecules, nor are its force fields, nor is your body. So it would be a radically empirical approach to emptiness. So I'll end on a note. It's only a little bit, a couple of minutes in. I'll pack up as I'm talking. Um, that's fourth jhana. No reference to meditation and insight. He, just said, he didn't say first, second, third, fourth jhana, realize emptiness, and now you can do all these cities. He just said first, fourth first, second, third, fourth jhana, and then you can do them, right? He's speaking of power of samadhi, kind of laser technology in Buddhism. But he didn't mention perfection of wisdom in that passage. Um, but fourth jhana, that's a long haul. That's a lot longer than a lot farther down the road than shamatha. Right? So that's a statement straight from the sutras. It's widely accepted in Indian Buddhism, Mahayana, Chinese Buddhism, and so forth, widely accepted. And according to even relatively recent accounts, there are people who have done that. They are demonstrating such cities. I mean, it's all over the history of Hinduism and Buddhism. Because the Hindus achieved the fourth jhana as commonly as Buddhists do. They have the technology. They have the cities. Very common. You know. So we don't have to believe that, but you know, there it is. The fourth jhana, that's, that's way up there. It's far beyond access to the first jhana. So I've got a hypothesis. What if you didn't go all the way to the fourth jhana? What if you just made it as far as the substrate consciousness? You know, just access to the first jhana. Just cross the threshold into the form realm. You know, so you're, you, you have, you've, uh, how do you say, gotten your membership in the form realm. You've crossed the threshold. You know, oh, okay, welcome. Here, we'll, we'll stamp, your, stamp your hand. You can come into the form realm at, you, at wish, at, at will. Right? 
Let's imagine you just have shamatha, a little of access to the first jhana. But you remember what Stongaba said, achieve shamatha, and now the power of your samadhi is going to go right into your sleep state. That's what he said, achieve shamatha. That stability, clarity, luminosity, and so forth, that's going to streak not only through your waking state, radically transforming your waking experience, that's going to streak right through into your dream state. So that bodes well for learning how to become lucid in dreamless sleep. If your samadhi is flowing right in, why not? And then, of course, lucid dreaming. <coughs> so you should be wonderfully prepared for dream yoga if you've actually achieved shamatha. Well, imagine you just samadhi-wise, you're content with shamatha. You say, well, you know, the four jhanas, I could die any moment. I don't want to die practicing the four jhanas. I want to die practicing keeping right down the straight line. Shamatha, Vipassana, Tekchut, Tutkil, and enhance it with dream yoga. That's what I really like to do. There's no frills, no detours, no, no way to get, get lost in the, the fun and games of samsara. You know, I just want to keep on a straight path here. But imagine you've achieved shamatha, and then you say, well, okay, but I'm going to practice. I still need to sleep, but by gum, I'm not going to waste my sleep time. I'm going to practice that dream yoga. But you do it with the samadhi power of shamatha. And you do everything he says. You don't need fourth jhana. Absolutely don't need fourth jhana to do anything he's talking about in dream yoga. You don't need it. That's clear. So imagine then just with the power of shamatha, which is not insignificant, you go through the whole practice, everything he's described. And whatever understanding, whatever understanding you have of emptiness, uh, good. Whatever understanding of Dzogchen or the view, good. But primarily shamatha. And then you go through that. You go through emanation transformation. And you're just exercising, just doing what I said. And in the dream state, thoroughly fathoming the emptiness of everything in the dream state. Right? So then you come out of your dream. And you're coming out, of course, with your shamatha. You went in with shamatha, coming out with shamatha. And now, of course, you're seeing everything to be dreamlike. Why wouldn't you? Maybe you achieved shamatha. You're seeing appearances all over the place, empty. But you've just come out of one dream after another after another of displaying your cities and knowing the emptiness of phenomena by way of your cities. And then you're telling yourself, this is dreamlike. This is dreamlike. So here's a hypothesis. You may be able to display a lot of those cities even without the fourth jhana, if you have just access to the first jhana, but the insights of dream yoga. You might be able then to see, well, this is very much like a dream, because watch, I'm going to walk through this wall. If you did that, that would be quite impressive. So that's a hypothesis. So, um, <laughs> test it. They found some really nice property. No, no, no certainty that they can go for it, but they found some really nice property now, way up on the Gold Coast in Australia, you know, where they have 60 people. They've got a benefactor. They, found a, they sent me photos. Beautiful property uh, up in, yeah, not very far south of Brisbane way up in the northeast corner of New South Wales. And it's for sale. It looked gorgeous. Maybe they'll find someplace better. But so maybe a contemplative observatory is about to be born. So good. Why not run some experiments? I give a hypothesis. See whether it's true or not. See if it's true or false. But the only way you find out, of course, is do the practice. That's all. Enjoy your Sunday. I shall. See you Monday morning.